Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome along to the latest episode of the Manchester Red podcast from the Manchester Evening News. I'm today's host, George Smith, and I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by my colleagues Samuel Luckhurst and Rich Favis sunny Monday afternoon. Samuel, first of all, how are you? Yes, very well, thank you, George. How are you? Not bad at all, thank you very much. And Rich, how's things at your end? Yes, very good, thank you very much. Like I said, surprisingly sunny, but still bitterly cold. Um, yeah, it's not always as it seems, I suppose, and that probably does United, uh, sums up United season as well. So Yeah, that probably is the perfect way to start this episode, of course. Manchester United back in action on Sunday afternoon after the international break, and Probably most United fans were quite relieved waking up Sunday morning that domestic football was back. But probably by the time they went to bed, they were, you know, probably gutted it had actually come back. United resumed their campaign on Sunday afternoon with a very lacklustre 2-0 defeat at St James's Park against Newcastle United. Samuel, Rich, you were both at St James's yesterday afternoon. And I think all things considered, Samuel, it was an afternoon to forget for United, wasn't it? Every decision Ten Hag seemed to make backfired or didn't come off. I don't think he got anything right yesterday really maybe apart from taking Valt Weghorst off on, on the hour but he still he still started Weghorst there, there were just so many issues with that team uh, the midfield is obviously the, the place you look at immediately and whatever combination he was going to go with it was never going to be ideal because there's no Casemiro and the three options he had all of them preferred to be higher up the pitch but of the three that were available, I, I just thought that Fred had to be absolutely the first first name on the team sheet of the midfielders. And then he it turned out he didn't start whatsoever. And with McTominay and Sabitza, the, the warning signs were there against West Ham and Fulham in the cup games. McTominay came off at half time against West Ham with the game goalless. And then he came off uh, before the hour mark against Fulham with Fulham 1-0 up and Fulham were the better team for 70 minutes in that game. So as incompatible as Sabitzer and Fred have looked at times, their record is still three games, two wins, one draw. And okay, the performances of of both of them in those matches, as I said, were very, very um, unconvincing and and pretty problematic. But you've still got to go off off, off the record. And Ten Hag may say, well, with Sabitzer and McTominay, we won both of those games, but McTominay wasn't on the pitch for half of one. He was he was off the pitch for most of the other half as well. Um, and, and that was an area where Newcastle were always going to exploit United because Guimaraes is, is, is certainly outside the 
I suppose the the elite six clubs in the Premier League. He's he's possibly the best player in the league. He's a player who would be worthy of a Champions League team next season if if Newcastle failed to make it. And you need someone who's going to press him, who's going to engage him, who's going to try and contain him. And and Fred has got that energy. He's one of the best pressers in the United side. McTominay and Sabitzer didn't. There was no. There was barely any communication there. Uh, Sabitzer was the deeper midfielder. He ended up at right back at one point. He was so discombobulated. McTominay just seems to be mired in this identity crisis. Whenever he plays for United, he doesn't know whether he's coming or going, whether he's attacking or he's defending. And it turned out that the, the only, I mean, the main, mainly the best work that he did yesterday was defensive work. The odd tackle inside his, uh, inside his own third. And of course, with with Veghorst, uh, he's he's utterly harmless. It's, I mean, it's, it says it all that he's he's played nineteen games now. He's got two goals. His record for Burnley last season was twenty games and two goals. So it's almost an identical record uh, to to what he had for for Burnley in, in in a season that they eventually ended up relegated when he'd come in at the halfway point and was supposed to, you know, from their perspective, they they hoped he would be. The savior, but I think he's actually getting worse for United. Uh, I thought he was dreadful the way at Betis. He was even worse at Fulham, and yesterday was was possibly the Nadir because he just he has no presence aerially. Uh, when United players get the ball, they're they're hesitant about whether to to service him or how to service him. When he goes up for aerial duels, he seems to shrink. And really, he's he's beneath them. I mean, Ten Hag said in January that United had signed average players who are not good enough, and, and that shouldn't be good enough for Manchester United, which every United fan would agree with. A week later, he signed someone who is objectively average at best, but he's actually been below average. And it's not entirely Veghorst's fault. He's been overexposed. <clears throat> excuse me, and overplayed because Marshall has been so brittle. But for the first time yesterday where the two of them were available, it, it was not a surprise whatsoever that Vekos came off for Marshall just after the hour. But the, the problems go beyond that. I just thought Ten Hag had a, a really, really, really bad day uh, from, from the moment that team sheet dropped. Uh, the, the, the first two substitutions, I wasn't quite sure about Sancho coming on. As low as the bar was, Anthony was probably the only United forward who looked like he was capable of doing anything. Yet it said it all that the United supporters got audibly exasperated with him because he has this tendency to to slow the game down, not be direct enough uh, for whatever reason. And uh, you, you look at the defence, the, the two fullbacks, both of them were off it yesterday. Luke Shaw, I mean, as Rich was saying afterwards, because Shaw came out and gave some good quotes. And Shaw even said pretty much that I, I seem to be saying the same thing after every defeat. And really, the fans are sick and tired of it. I think us journalists are sick and tired of hearing uh, the, the same thing. It, it's, it's maddening just why United... Yeah, as defeatist as they can be when when they lose games and they've lost some games very very badly this season. I, I thought yesterday, in terms of an overall performance, it was far worse than at Anfield, and I just didn't like the mentality about United yesterday. They'd concede a corner from the goodness knows how many shots that Newcastle peppered them with, and it would be all high fiving. It would be you know great great block, effectively celebrating a piece of defending. There was nobody actually rollicking them, asking why one of the midfielders was being positionally indisciplined, why the wingers weren't keeping the ball, why they weren't creating chances at the other end, why they were so stretched at times. It was almost as if they, it was this 
ridiculous good vibes only of, okay, we got a block in, but you've still got a corner to defend. And then, of course, the second goal, it comes from something that was you know pretty much close to a corner from, from Trippier's free kick and the, the, the triple substitution late on. If you're taking two centre-backs off and you've got a corner and um, if, you, if, if you're absolutely insistent on putting a centre-back on, logically it it would be Maguire at that point and Ten Hag did that earlier in the season he chucked him on up front against Real Sociedad he puts Lindelof on he's not exactly a renowned for having a goal scoring threat and he is known for being uh, vulnerable in the air and what happens is Callum Wilson gets in between him and Rashford to to kill the game so it was I mean United were lifeless and, and Newcastle were lively they they fully deserved their win they were they were terrific yesterday yeah, there's certainly no argument about that. I thought United were very, very poor and arguably one of their worst performances of the season. And Rich, that kind of leads us to the, the next point about United's away record against teams, certainly in the top half of the table. And I've crunched the numbers a little bit and looked at them. And when you actually go a little bit further down to the table, all the way down to Chelsea uh, and Crystal Palace at 11th and 12th, United have taken five points for a possible 27 away from home against top 12 teams this season. It's... It's an alarming record that is, you know, it's pretty bad for a club that, you know, has got aspirations of Manchester United's physique. So next season, supposedly, a title charge is going to be the aim. This is an issue that is ongoing for two, three years now with this really poor away record against the better teams. But, you know, Crystal Palace, Chelsea, Brentford, you know, United have gone to those places and not really, you know, got anything other than a point in one or two. And obviously the only win was at Fulham. So... How do they go about addressing this away record? Because it seems as when the slightest bit of pressure sets in away from home, they crumble. Yeah, and you know, United's rise at the table has been that they have been best of the rest. They've had more consistency than the other challenges. But there's always been this underlying sense that if a few of the other teams had their crap together, then United wouldn't be as high up as they are, really. They've managed to take advantage of a quite poor field below, below City and Arsenal in the table. And it's still not looking that good enough. I mean, I was, I was looking at the stats myself as well, and they're only three points better off this season than they were at the same stage last season. And last season was their worst ever Premier League campaign. So you can always twist the narrative. Obviously, there's been cup competitions in there as well, which have always sort of helped United have a sort of better reflection of, of, of how they're doing, when if you look at just the league form, have big concerns. And of course, since the Carabao Cup, there's there's been some decent matches for United in those cup competitions. But since they last beat Newcastle in the Carabao Cup, they've not scored a goal in the league and they've not uh, won a match either. So it has been a problem. They've had such a fortress at home that the away form's always going to look less flattering compared with that. But as you said there, the record is abysmal. And there's a slight element of slack in terms of the the top teams they've played. So they've they lost away at City, they lost to Arsenal, they lost to Liverpool, they've lost to Newcastle, they drew with Chelsea. The only one of those games in which Casemiro and Eriksen both started was Chelsea. And they nicked a point right at the end of that one, but they played quite well overall and deserved to get something from the game. So they have been at a slight disadvantage this calendar year that they've not had Casemiro and Eriksen for, for much of it. And those two are so integral to, to everything United do and Ten Hag's whole style of play. But as you said, you can't just keep using that as an excuse every week. It feels just like we're going around in circles. It feels like Groundhog Day that after every United away performance, we say Veghorst was crap. They missed Casemiro. <laughs> they were a bit lifeless and the midfield just didn't function. And 
you know, they've got two home games coming up this week. So no matter how poor form has been, you'd still back United to at least get maybe four points from those two. But of course, like Casemiro and, and Eriksen, that's, that's easier said than done. But it is just alarming, really, for me, the, the drop-off in quality in this United squad still. Uh, Ten Hag has spent so much money. What was it £225 million he spent last summer? But that was offset by the six senior players they, that they lost on the free any, on freeze anyway. You know, that they had to spend quite big to, to replace them. But... What is alarming for me is the fact that there's still so much work to be done. It's not as easy as saying put Harry Kane in this team and they become title challengers because there is just so many areas of concern, so many squad players who need to be moved on. United need to be ruthless. Ten Hag can't be loyal to players that he has no reason to be. And I think it's just all compiling together and, and taking its toll at the moment. There's a lot of little elements. Of course, next season... That they should be playing less games, you know, fewer games, and there should be more chance for rotation. It should be a bit of a kind of schedule. But I think that all in all, it just highlighted that there is real work to be done for United to still overhaul this squad, not just the lineup, which needs improvement, but the squad as well this summer. Yeah, definitely. I think when you look at United's recent form in the, in the Premier League itself, it has been on a decline for the best part of, you know, two and a half, three months now. They've only won three of their last nine failed to score in the last three. Samuel, obviously, United have still got the FA Cup to compete for, the Europa League as well, but obviously the objective at the start of the season, of course, was getting into the top four and back into the Champions League. Obviously, every football supporter's dream is to see their team win everything, win every game. But for you personally, where do you see United's priorities lying between now and the end of the season? Do you think it will be a full focus on the top four or looking maybe towards the Europa League, the FA Cup, and adding more silverware to the Carabao Cup draft that they've already got? And I think that would be the wrong mentality to of United to even try and separate them. I don't think that Ten Hag would ever sit down the players and say, right, we're going to go for the league. We're going to toss it off in, in the Europa League when we've got a, a tie against a La Liga side who not long ago were in the relegation zone and are probably still in the bottom half of the table despite Sevilla's pedigree in the Europa League. And that is always a, a danger. Uh, used to be a, a death knell, really, until West Ham beat them last season. That is an eminently winnable tie for United. They're 90 minutes away from an FA Cup semi-final, although they've got to go through one of the uh, one of the most impressive teams in the, the Premier League this season. They've they've not got a cup game for another what, 10 days, is it? They, they play, obviously, Sevilla in the first leg. Next week, it's it's two league games this week. As, as cliched as it sounds, they have to look at it as a game-by-game -game basis. I mean, they got through February very, very impressively when they started the... I think they started the month with the League Cup semi-final. Um, I don't think they had an FA Cup game in it, but of course they had the Europa League doubleheader. They had a few league games. Uh, they had the League Cup final at the end of the month. And it's not a surprise that there has been a drop-off since then because that month ended with them ending their trophy drought they got a little bit lucky against West Ham in the first game in, in March and then of course Anfield happened and I, I suspect that their confidence has been knocked by that second half still they they responded very very well a few days after it with the the win over Betis where they were very creative very dominant should have won by a greater margin but the league form is is pretty woeful since the the derby and of course that was the game where you had these um yeah, th there was a bit of title chatter at that time which I never bought whatsoever I think if United had taken four points off Palace and Arsenal 
in that next week uh, when they had those two away games, I think you could have maybe looked at the possibility of them mounting a challenge because again they would have been that have been a, a pretty decent return. But in both games they lost their nerve. They they weren't quite sure how to proceed after going one 0 up at Palace and they threw it away at Arsenal. That three two score line and Arsenal getting a late goal was very very misleading. Arsenal were very impressive that day. United were pretty lucky to to, to get off with a 3-2 defeat overall. And they still have this tendency uh, for their performance level to plummet to such a low. You think, how can that happen after what happened at Brentford in, in August? I mean, this has been a very progressive season for United, but they've been 4-0 by Brentford, 6-3 by City, uh, 7-0 by Liverpool. And that Newcastle performance on Sunday was... I'd, I'd possibly put it second behind Brentford in terms of the list of worst performances this season. I mean, they were pretty hopeless at City, but you are coming up against a, a, an awesome side there. And, it, it, you know, Ten Hag, that's got to be confirmation for Ten Hag and his staff that there are some players there that as well as, as much for tune as they've got out of them this season, they're not equipped to handle the, the next the next step. And the next step has got to be a title challenge. If if they're looking at this season, they they should still finish in the top four at the very least. They've got to aim for third. I, I think it would be as defeatist as looking at some of the players yesterday at Newcastle, where it was almost as if, oh, they're playing local hero. The crowd are up for it. Newcastle are up for it. It was there was a bit of the white flag about United, how they just turned up. There was some gamesmanship. They were dependent on the counter attack. They're actually quite small time. And if you're Man United, you're going to Newcastle and you're resorting to small time tactics, there's something wrong with that. You can't just you know, dismiss it as an aberration. The aberration was seemingly Anfield uh, four or five weeks ago. So they need to, this, this has happened quite early in, in the restart uh, ahead of the run-in. And if that's going to be the worst of it between now and the end of the season, then at least you know things are going to get better, and, and United uh, can can learn from that, and they've got that one out the road. But they can't be talking about what's the priority. They need to have as successful a season as possible, and the more successful they are, the stronger a position the manager is in in the summer to demand that they do get targets one, two, three. You know, they they need a striker, they need a midfielder. If one of the two centre-backs go, they need a centre-back. There is an argument, the way it's going, that they, they may need a, a right-back. Uh, I mean, Wan the United was so bad on Sunday, they, they missed Wan-Bissaka. You, you, watching Dallow up against some Maxman, Dallow's confidence is still shot. And you know, even a, a supporter, a friend who was in the away end yesterday, uh, he said about Luke Shaw. He said it's when when you actually consider that he's on the verge of signing a new contract and he's had one truly good season out of nine. This is his ninth season at United. Those are not standards that should um, result in, in in remuneration. So a lot a lot of people a lot of players at the club still um, there's there's an element of you know of them being on trial i think uh, Shaw's not one of them because he's as i said he's he's going to get that new deal but there's they've always got to be careful united not to you know take these backward step or fall fall into the trap of of complacency and just looking at the results and the performances since the cup final 
I think it has happened. Yeah, it's certainly been an interesting period for Manchester United and hopefully things will improve in the coming weeks in the Premier League. But we will be back in part two where we're going to discuss the latest transfer news and any updates potentially on the takeover. Do rejoin us then. Welcome back. Before we jump into the latest transfer news, obviously the takeover situation still ongoing. Many, many question marks surrounding that. Rich, obviously, there's been obviously all the talk of the Qatar situation, Sir Jim Ratcliffe as well, um, Ziliakus as well, coming to light recently. Where, where do you put the whole situation from your perspective? Is it something that needs to get sorted as soon as possible, or do you think United can just bide that little bit more time with it to make sure it's bang on the money and perfect for them? Like you said there, I don't think you can rush into these decisions. They're monumental, they're huge, and they will shape the future of United for decades to come. But there is going to have to be some sort of urgency in terms of trying to get a resolution in place before the summer transfer window opens, really. We know Eric Ten Hag wants to continue this rebuild. We know that he wants to get his top targets into the club early. At this moment in time, you might be able to draw up your short list of players that you want and be able to sort of gauge how much money you've got to sort of how much they will cost, but you don't know how much money you've got to spend and you don't know if your entire summer strategy will be based on player sales or not. I mean, United do need to try balance the books to a degree that no matter what happens in terms of the takeover, but obviously if they were to get a huge sort of windfall of cash, then maybe they could buy before they sell. And at the moment, it feels very much that they're going to have to sell to supplement any other additions beyond that, that elite striker that they want. And, you know, United fans will be quite impatient, but they've had to wait 15 years already. So as long as change is coming, I think from their point of view, they will, to a degree, bite their tongues and, and accept it's going to take take a while to happen. And of course, we still just need to see whether the Glazers actually will go ahead of the sale and, and do indeed want to sell, as the indications have been. I mean, all the news has been that the offers, even the revised offers, maybe don't quite reach the the valuation that the Glazers have, the top end and, and where they see the, the business going. But any prospective buyer needs to know and hopefully will now have the clarity on exactly what they would be getting themselves into, how much money would be required to to overhaul the stadium, overhaul the playing squad, invest in facilities, invest in all areas of the club as well. So like you said, it's it's really complicated. It can't be rushed by by any means, but if it's going to happen this year, then you sense it has to be done and dusted really before before the start of the transfer window because United have such an important job to do in, in terms of getting that squad overhaul. And as we've said earlier in the podcast, Ten Hag wants that, that to be done quickly and he wants a lot of it to be done as well. He wants, as some of us written today on, on Monday, if you've not read it already, he wants it to be ruthless. He feels that there needs to be a proper clear out and there's always got to be uncertainty if, if there's, even if, takeovers in, in progress sometimes that can put you under a tra- transfer embargo until things are finalized and that would be a disaster for united heading into the summer window if even if a takeover was in progress if embargo was put against them until it was actually finalized done and dusted so there's so many cogs in all of this there's so much mitigation and i suppose the the boring conclusion of it is all just to keep your eyes peeled on the manchester even news website for any updates as that happens but yeah right now it's just a case of, of seeing how it plays out over the coming days. I mean, initially, I think there was talk of trying to have a, an Easter deadline. That's this weekend uh, coming up. So it seems highly, highly unlikely that, that we'll have that. But 
you'd expect in the coming weeks, the coming months, that a preferred bidder would be identified and that talks and any sort of deal can, can really progress from there. But right now it is very much sort of a waiting game. Certainly is. And moving on to the transfer window itself, forgetting about the elephant in the room for now. Samuel, as Rich said, you wrote a piece this morning, Monday morning, about how Herrick Ten Hag plans to be quite ruthless in his decision-making this forthcoming summer. Obviously, everybody's going to be excited about potential incomings. But as you've written, Ten Hag wants to try and offload quite a few members of his squad, quite a few big names. Do you think, obviously, United's track record of selling players certainly isn't the best? We know that quite well. Do you think they're going to struggle to offload certain members of this squad, particularly the likes of Marshall, who's obviously been injured for the majority of the season? Harry Maguire's stock has obviously fallen rapidly. So it's not going to be in your task to just move these players on and click your fingers as if to say, we're going to do this, we'll do that, get the new players in. It's going to be quite a long process, you would think. Indeed. the As, as you said, the, the track record of selling players is so bad that when they got that fee for Daniel James from, from Leeds, I think that places him in the top five of, of player sales. They, they got as much money for, for him as they did from, from Real Madrid for David Beckham. So you can go back 20 years when United had one of the most, probably the most marketable athlete on the planet. And if you were creating the Frankenstein's monster of footballers, you'd probably want David Beckham's right foot. And they only wanted £25 million for him because Sir Alex Ferguson wanted rid of him. So it's, it's, it's a historic thing, even though the staff have changed, the managers have changed, they've got a football director there now. And the fees they got last summer, I mean, the Pereira fee was was pretty good going. And I, I suppose it did help that Keir Jurabchin has got his finger in the, the Fulham pie there. That There have been a few uh, Jurabchin clients who've ended up at, at Fulham over the last, last few months. Uh, the James Garner fee, there were, I, I think I had about three different figures for the, the fee that they obtained for, for Garner. I think United were trying to probably make it look better than it was. But ultimately, there are a number of players there. Uh, in this existing squad, not necessarily in in Ten Hag squad at the moment, who are on loan as well, that they want rid of, that have no future at United. Uh, it's still unclear. Even Eric Bay, I mean, you, you may not, you may remember him from such seasons as the Jose Mourinho first season, but he is still a Manchester United player, and it's still unclear whether he will hit that appearance milestone for. Uh, for, for Marseille that would trigger their obligation to sign him. Marseille also have to qualify for the Champions League, which they probably will do. But I don't think United can necessarily count their chickens on on that one just yet. Uh, Dean Henderson's stock has has gone down just because he's been injured uh, for for two months now. So that that's going to affect his valuation. Henderson should be pretty sellable because there are going to be a few clubs in need of a. A good goalkeeper in the summer. I've thought for a while that he'd be very good for Tottenham, but Manchester United and Tottenham don't deal with each other uh, very, very often at all. As as United have discovered uh, from from a few tentative attempts to try and prize uh, Spurs players from the the padlock grip of of Daniel Levy in in recent years uh, with Martial. You know, it, it makes complete sense for United to plan to to sell him, but. Hasn't completed 90 minutes in the Premier League since January 21. Yesterday was only his 15th appearance out of 47 games for United this season. I think he's had five separate injuries this season. He had quite a significant injury that prevented him from playing in the European Championship two years ago. His goal-scoring record in recent years is poor as well. It's 
it's a bit of a hard sell, really. Uh, I mean, I, th I still think he'd be very good in a side of a certain profile, but you know, that, that that's a very you're not exactly casting the net wide there. It's it's a pretty um, it's a pretty small net of clubs that would look at Martial and then would they have the, the financial muscle to to entice United into selling him? Because United don't want to just cut their nose spite their face. They they're a business as well, and with the financial sustainability rules in football, they want to get you know, decent fees for, for for decent players. And, and Martial on his day is a decent player. Uh, Maguire has still got the the cachet of being an England regular, which I suppose does preserve his value to an extent, but. He's he's been a squad player for almost the entirety of of, of this season at United, and that th that's going to be a big loss on the eighty million pounds they paid Leicester in in twenty nineteen for him. Um, they're, they're not they're not at, as it stands with the provisional plan. They don't have McTominay down to be sold, which I can understand because he's one of four senior central midfielders at United, and he's the un he's the youngest one by far. He's the only one who's not in his thirties yet. I'd say McTominay and Henderson, because they've come through the academy, because they're full internationals and they're both Premier League proven, those are the two that you should, could get very good fees for. Uh, if you were to really try and maximise it, you, you'd probably be looking at, I, I, I know this might sound like a gargantuan figure, but if you could get 60 million for those two, I think that would be pretty fair um, going off, off their ages, their stock. Uh, the, the education they've had just come through the United Academy and as I said they're international players who've got a lot of Premier League experience as well and then there are a couple of players that they've factored um, into the squad planning for loans next season at the moment Palestri's down for a loan Anthony Alanga is down for a loan um, Ten Hag has to decide whether Ahmad is up to it whether he'll be um, good enough for, for the first team squad next season. They they yet to decide what to do with Mason Greenwood as well, uh, which is is a process that really they could do with uh, coming to a con conclusion sooner rather than later because that has that has gone on for a while already and you know, it's it's a question that gets raised every week. You you wonder also how much due diligence do United really need to be doing on on, on a player who has been with them for such a long time and although it's a very sensitive case uh, whatever the outcome uh, that, that comes of it it's it's going to cause a bit of a stir so how however way you look at it that there, there are there are a lot of areas of the squad where united are still bloated and they've you know they have restricted the size of it somewhat with a few loans that they they negotiated in the summer when which for, were for cut price really i mean i think the fee that Bay could go to Marseille for is something like six million euros, and he's a player that they signed for for thirty million pounds. I mean, it's just an acceptance. It's it's an admission of defeat. And again, you wonder why they gave him that new contract two years ago. So there is still quite a lot of squad management, even though this team does feel like it's in Ten Hag's image. They are still a long way off from being at the um, at the level that he wants from them, because as we said earlier. Uh, the, the way they played at Newcastle, there was no desire to keep the ball, try and control the game. They were obviously coming up against a very good team, but that, that wasn't the exception to the norm. United are still not at that level where they're able to control games. And that's obviously what Ten Hag was renowned for at Ajax, and it's the way Ajax play. It's never really been the way United play, and maybe there'll be a compromise there, but they 
they can't have that small time attitude going into certain away games. And as you said, with uh, the numbers, their away form, I didn't realise it was as utterly abysmal as it is. And you're not going to you're not going to move on to the next level if you don't address that. And in order to address that, you have to change the way you play. And if you're to change the way you play, you're going to need different players coming into the club. You certainly are, and I think you've hit the nail on the head there with obviously United lacking that control at St James's Park yesterday. Obviously, Casemiro, as we've, we've all documented many times this season, he's absolutely vital to the way this team plays. And that, Rich, kind of puts a focus on, obviously, there's so much chatter about United getting a striker this season as the number uh, this summer, I should say, is the priority. But I think it is a case of where they desperately need to strengthen that central midfield area as well, obviously. Frankie de Jong, people are still talking about him. A lot of people still dreaming of Jude Bellingham. That seems unlikely. Certainly, if United don't get in the Champions League, that would you know that'd be a non-starter. But do you say that after a striker, the central midfield position is the second most important aspect that Ten Hag needs to address this summer? Yeah, I, I would say that. Like you said, and as we've said earlier, it's not just Casemiro, it's Eriksen. They've missed so much yeah. this calendar year, really, yeah. since that injury in January. And since you've said the the league form, I mean, that almost probably, I've not looked at it, but that sounds like it lines up with when Ericsson's been missing as well, really, that it's sort of dropped off a cliff because they just don't have anyone else who can rep- replicate what he does. And Ericsson Hogg's entire philosophy is about this composure, creativity in possession of the ball. And his midfield against Newcastle was the opposite of that. I mean, Fernandez is the most aligned and he's a risk taker. He's someone who really does gamble and, and play in those margins, which... You know, even long term, he doesn't quite look like the perfect fit for a Ten Hag side. It is people like Casemiro, like De Jong, like Eriksen, who are really aligned there, who play the percentages and don't rush things. They just take things calm and composed. They have the experience. They they can dictate games and they just don't get flustered. So I think it is imperative that United add another player of that quality to the squad. I also think long term, it's imperative, maybe not this summer, but going forward, they need to get someone who is a replacement for Casemiro, because even if Casemiro next season isn't suspended as much as he has been this campaign, he doesn't have injuries, they're still going to be fighting on like three, four fronts. So they're going to need to rotate their squad. They're going to need to have some sort of plan B. And at this moment in time, they just simply do not have that whatsoever. I mean, they've tried and put so many different players there, but they just haven't found that solution yet. And it's, it's crucial that they do between now and the end of the season at least get a bit more sort of guidance and shed light on, on what a contingency plan can be without Casemiro. But as you said, I do think that should be second on their list because it just, their the whole philosophy and the whole style of play they want under Ten Hag, it stems from that player who who's the sort of number six in midfield, someone who can make things happen, who can spread the passes, as we said, who can just keep things ticking over. And I think Ericsson did such an unsung role in a way of, of doing that is is just effortless to watch. You think of that Fulham game before the World Cup, Garnacho gets the credit for the goal, but it's Ericsson's pass that no one else can play really. I mean Casemiro, I think, is the only other player in the United team that plays that pass from deep. It's perfectly weighted, cuts open the defence and, and United get the winner there. And obviously it's Garnacho's moment, but it was all about Ericsson. And I think that, that has to be that has to be a priority, but it's easier said than done. And like we said, there's the mitigation of the takeover until that's sorted. They're going to go all out for a striker. Uh, you don't maybe know how much you've got to spend on the midfielder until you've bought your striker. And you also do not know what you've got to play with until you've sold some of those players. So 
it is easier said than done. There's so many cogs in all of this. But yeah, if I was playing FIFA or Football Manager, I would be buying that that midfielder right after I've just bought Ozzyman or Kane. Yeah, he's certainly one that they've got to address. And to be fair, the Ericsson situation, it is very true. To be fair, I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago saying how basically Ericsson, Casemiro, probably the most important combination in that team for the way United like to play. Samuel, obviously, Rich has touched on the need for a midfielder. We know the need for a striker. In terms of other positions that might need to be looked at this summer, do you think the right-back area is one that Eric Ten Hag might want to bolster? He, he may do, but... I mean, they're, they're limited as to what they can do there. They would have gone for one in the summer had there been a taker for Wan-Bissaka and, and there wasn't. So in the end, it was, we're, you know, we're happy to keep Aaron and da, 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 da. I think there was literally an update, something like that, that someone uh, wrote towards the end of the window. Uh, I, I forgot to obviously mention uh, Sancho earlier, uh, from what I've been told, that Ten Hag is, is becoming quite impatient with him. Uh, again, he was he was poor yesterday when he came on and he's actually been having an impact in most games when he's emerged as a substitute but unfortunately for him all season I don't think he's had one game as a starter where from start to finish he's he's truly excelled and United have got a lot of wide players and Rashford is obviously the the main left winger Garnacho when he's fit is pretty much the the next man to go to there so it, it does raise the question as to what United um, may do with Sancho and I, I don't think he can necessarily be assured of, of you know, having a, a secure future at United beyond the end of this season uh, but with the right back it's it, it's an area that in recent months it's it's clear that United could could improve there but again you, you need money to to sign all these players and the, the Anthony and Casemiro deals in the last summer uh, the, the way the the club described them was that they were bankrolled and United owe a hell of a lot of money in outstanding transfer fees. Um, I think it was as of a couple of months ago, something like over about three hundred and eight million pounds, which is obviously a rather rather large sum of of, of money. And a striker is going to be around a hundred million, maybe more. Uh, a really good midfielder. Last last summer they agreed an eighty five million euro fee for for Frankie Dion. So a top striker and a top midfielder alone unless you're being very smart about it that is the best part of 200 million pounds it's possibly north of 200 million pounds and United can't every summer spend over 200 million pounds I mean John Murta said that in one of the uh, I think it was the conference call back in September that was of course before it became known that the club were looking at this what in, in corporate speak they referred to as a strategic review, i.e. is anyone going to give us enough money that is going to convince the Glazers to sell up? It remains to be seen uh, whether they do that or not. Uh, I, I really wouldn't be surprised if the Glazers stick around just because they're the Glazers. They're completely undeterred by whatever happens in Manchester, whatever the protests are. There were two Glazer siblings for the opening game of the season and you know they they were they were fine. They they didn't have any issue being there. They don't come to games very often, but as as you saw during the the League Cup final, if they want to go to a game, they will go to a game. And no, however many protests there are, um, they're, they're not going to be discouraged from that. So United need to obviously raise cash to continue to improve the squad, and also the uh, these financial sustainability rules that. Uh, that the Premier League have, that UEFA have, you've got to be mindful of them. So 
I mean, the chat, the talk from United in January was that they would have to, they'd have to sell just to get a midfielder in. And that's in the current climate. Obviously, things could change for the summer depending on what the situation with the ownership is, whether they do get new investment, where, whether they do have uh, new owners. They, they do need more cash, though. They need more investment because the cash flow was so low last year. And it wasn't, it wasn't a coincidence that the two biggest signings of the summer, as, as far as fees were concerned anyway, came after, uh, after the, the Brentford game. You know, it was it was pretty much that was the the permission that that Ten Hag received to to go and and get a defensive midfielder. It, it changed just like that. So, as as much as you know, a lot of United fans, I'm sure, would like an improvement in an area as like right back. That, that I just see that as very very low down the list of priorities, unless someone comes in with an offer that they think right you know that that's that's good enough for us we can use that money and and reinvest it in a new right back it's it's much easier if it's one out one in i think the center back issue is is a lot more clear is a lot clearer because lindelof has said he needs to examine his future Maguire started to say a little bit more on his position on international duty as well, because I think he knows that the game is probably up for him at United. If one of those two go, United have to bring a centre back in and they, they should get a reasonable fee for Lindelof or Maguire. I think there would be too much upheaval for both of them to go. I think United really need to try and consciously avoid that. But that's what what's made Ten Hag's decision making of late quite odd in that um the Betis game and the Fulham games, uh, when when Varane, uh, I think Varane was rested for one, he was injured for the other. He started Maguire in both of them, which I just thought was a bit peculiar, given that Lindelof has seemingly been the third choice centre back this season. And then when Maguire should have come on at at uh, Newcastle, it was it was Lindelof who who came on. So um, again, you know, Ten Hag didn't get a lot wrong. Sorry, a lot right, I should say, on on Sunday, and the, the way he's been managing the reserve centre backs of late, he's he's not particularly got right either. It's all very very interesting, shall we say? You know, ahead of the summer. But just lastly, on the transfer front, before we move on, um, Rich, obviously everybody's got their opinions on who should this new number nine be to lead United the attack next season. Out of the candidates that we know are genuine targets and players that United are running the rule over. Where do you sit with it and who would be your preferred preference to see lead that line next summer, next season, I should say? Do you want, do you want a one-word answer or do you want an actual answer? Take your pick. <laughs> it's Osman, isn't it? I mean, Harry yeah. Kane would be the better short-term fix for me and he comes in with a guarantee of, of goals and, you know, he's Premier League proven. I think he's also on his day, not just the best striker in the Premier League, he's the best number 10. He, everything about a style of play, I think he fits like a glove for United, but... There's the issue of how much he'll cost, his age, the fact that it's dealing with Tottenham with Daniel Levy, Osman, much younger, you get maybe a decade or the best part of a decade out of him. The problem with Kane, for me, the biggest worry is that if you buy him, you're then having to look to sign a new striker in another two to three seasons already. There's, he doesn't necessarily fix it long term. And I think if you sign Kane as well, the expert then would be for a proper title challenge. I think it really does raise the roof, raise the standards. And I know there is always going to be a slight link with, or he could be like a new Van Persie for United. But Van Persie was 20 million, was he? Just under? Uh, you know, Just was, over. I think it was 24. Just over. Yeah. And Harry Kane would be what quadruple that, five times that, six times that. You know, it's 
it's completely different in terms of what we'd be expected from him. And even from United's point of view, they're a team who, as we've discussed previously in the podcast, have always looked to try and make a profit or, or, or break even on any player they sign. If, you, if you're buying Harry Kane, you're going to have to write him off that you're not going to get anywhere near what you pay for him this summer if you ever do try and cash in on him. So to repay his value, he's got to win you the Premier League and probably the Champions League as well. I just don't think that while he would be a, a perfect fit and he can help United become title challengers, I still don't think that it makes long-term business sense to to go for that deal. And maybe in an ideal world, United would sign Kane and another. But as we've said, they've got issues all over the all over the squad. So many other things to tackle that I just can't see that happening. So for me, I think Aussie men would be the better for a long-term fit, although I, I do concede that Kane would have the, the better immediate impact, probably. Samuel, are you in the Victor Osimhen corner as well? I would be, yeah, for pretty much all the uh, reasons that, uh, that that Rich stated there. I think Kane would be a, a coup with with caveats because that there's no way, if United were to go down the Kane route, there's no way that deal would get done until we were well into August and if you're well into August, the, the deadline is looming and, and Daniel Levy, being Daniel Levy, you'd think, well, why, why should I stop now? I'll just drag it out to, to deadline day again and, and, and make them really sweat for it. So United, for, for the planning purposes, it, it would be in their best interest to to have a striker lined up pretty quickly. Napoli are slightly, I mean, they're reluctant sellers, but they do tend to, to budge a lot, a lot more easily compared to Daniel Levy. I think everyone budges a lot more easily compared to to Levy, but they do drive a hard bargain as well With uh, when it comes to selling strikers. Cavani and Higuain, they obtained very high fees for when they sold them. I think Cavani went in 2013 to... PSG and, and Higuain went in 2016, was it, to Juventus? I think he might have gone the same summer that Pogba came to United because Juventus had that, that the cash from, from that deal. And also if Tottenham do get top four, which is, is possible, I mean, they, they might go above United this evening. Uh, if they beat Everton, we're, we're obviously talking on, on Monday afternoon, then I just think Kane is a, a non-starter. I, I just don't think Levy would, would ever entertain uh, selling him if Tottenham had Champions League football, I mean, he didn't entertain selling him a couple of years ago when they they weren't in the Champions League. But that was because you know, Kane and his brother extremely naively thought that they had a gentleman's agreement that Daniel Levy would let him go, what th- halfway through a six-year contract. I mean, it, it, there was there was a hell of a lot of delusion going on in the in the Kane family that that summer. Yeah, it's certainly going to be uh, one to watch, I think, in the coming months. But I think Victor Osman will be my choice as well, like what I've seen of him. But that's all for part two. We'll take a quick break and we'll look ahead to Wednesday night's clash with Brentford. Welcome back to this episode of the Manchester is Red podcast. As I've just said a moment or two ago, Brentford visiting Old Trafford on Wednesday night, the second of three Premier League games in just seven days. Rich, obviously after what happened on Sunday at St James's Park, United to uh, make a good good week of this. They really need to take six points on these two home games. But Brentford, as they found out back in August, though things have changed a lot since then, of course. This is not going to be an easy game. 
Not at all. And even to throw forward, as you probably don't want me to, to Everton as well, you even worry about that with, with this United side. It's almost feeling like the Raniak era where you can make a case and to drop points against against anyone uh, just because they've been so bad about Casemiro and, and without Ericsson. But like I said, this is this is a, a good chance now for, for United players to, to move on quickly, really. I mean, you'll ask any footballer and once they've lost a match, they'll want to, want to play the next day if they can. So Brentford in midweek is a real good opportunity for them to try and get out their system. Similar to, as Samuel said, the Betis game after the Liverpool humiliation, they managed to to have some sort of response. So I think United players, and they have to be, they have to relish this opportunity now to, to get points back on the board and to assert their dominance and to try and make top four as foregone as it seemed sort of a month ago or so. So... I think that you've still got to say United at home would will be favourites. I know Brentford have, have been fantastic. They've had a great season. United have experienced firsthand how deadly they can be on their day. And again, it's another another real tricky game in the mid, midfield is, is probably going to be the key area. And Brentford have been quite good there this season themselves. So I don't think it'll be pretty. I don't think it'll be convincing. But I do think United will have some sort of response it's just going to be fascinating to see if Ten Hag does finally make these changes that we all feel he should make and whether he he actually maybe not has the bravery but just has the common sense to do it. I mean, if Veghorst is starting when the team sheet drops on Wednesday evening, then God knows what will have to happen for him to never play for United again. You might as well just concede he's going to play every game until he retires from football. And... Yeah, I, I do think United have enough. They just need to make these sensible decisions and and embrace the fact they're back at home, back in their comfort zone. And like we said, by the end of the week, it could be six points and that will be a, a very different mood to the one at Old Trafford now. Yeah, definitely. And Samuel, of course, United have been, you know, for all their problems away from home this season, they have been very, very good at Old Trafford and beaten there since the, sept- uh, the 8th of September when they lost to Sociedad in the Europa League. Obviously, you know, the Premier League form has dropped off recently, but Brentford, as Rich has said, they're a good side. They're very good in midfield. They, of course, won at Manchester City earlier on in this season. But we've seen, haven't we, in, in recent matches where United have been at home, they've been a little bit slow in getting things moving. Surely, Ten Hag, as Rich has said, has got to switch things up. Martial has to start this game and most likely form a front three with Anthony and Rashford either side of him. Yeah, I, I don't... I can't think of any United fan out there that would say play Veghorst and there aren't there are a fair few United fans who are unconvinced about Martial but Veghorst I remember writing in January that he's he's just an extra body and he's he's barely that at times uh, Newcastle is more of a more of a lamppost than a than a body and they've, they've got to have a change up there they've got to change the midfield as well He's not played McTominay and Fred together since the Brighton game in August, first game of the season. He's clearly reluctant to go back to the past, hark back to something that is obviously synonymous with with the Solskjaer era, but it wouldn't be a surprise if if he does resort to it. I, th- I think Ten Hag has, has got to be more of his own man and, and go revert back to Fred and Sabitza instead. Maybe with the Newcastle game, he was yeah, trying to play on McTominay's goal-scoring form for Scotland and coming up against a team that are interested in signing him in the summer, but it just didn't work and there was a complete disconnect between McTominay and Sabitzer. So there there need to be sufficient 
changes, a freshening up of the attack. Rashford didn't didn't look fit at St James's Park either. I didn't think he, he was very frustrated when he didn't get a free kick in the first half when he launched his boot to the ground. And, and Ten Hag, as I've, I've rarely seen him as as angry as he was when he was protesting to the fourth official about it. But it really it doubled as United's frustration with with their performance and and their inability to to match Newcastle's intensity and and Brentford you know it's a pretty remarkable uh, statement that we're here we're in April and they have lost fewer games in the Premier League this season than United I think they've only lost is it five is it five games they've lost all season in in the Premier League um you know so United have lost seven yeah five and that that's that's I mean one that that's a hell of a reflection on the brilliant work that Thomas Frank has done there and he's he's already been one of the managers of the season and they have an identity they have a settled side they went to Brighton and again one of the uh, most impressive teams in the Premier League at the weekend they scored three goals they went one nil up two one up three two up they just couldn't quite hold on for three points but a three all draw away at Brighton having led three times and for them to come away disappointed from it. That's again another sign of progress uh, with Brentford. So you can, they're a team you just can't underestimate. Uh, I mean, it was a bit of a procession for United at home some last season because it was one of the last home games of the season. Brentford were um, safe in the knowledge that they weren't going to get relegated. Uh, you know, it, it, it was a pretty meaningless match, but the two games where it has been meaningful at the community stadium last season, United got, I think, Frank used. He might have said we absolutely destroyed United in the first half. He was he used quite quite an amusing phrase like that, and and they did. They absolutely battered them, but they couldn't score. And United were clinical early in the second half. This season, of course, Brentford uh, could score not not just once or twice or three times, but they got four goals and they were four nil up at half time. And it was, as I said, it's, it's it was the generational nadir for United. It's it's probably the most infamous defeat. They've had, um, and then of course Liverpool happened uh, last month. So it's it's a really really good test for United to to come up to, to have a game quite quickly after such a bad performance, but against a team that are settled, have an identity, have a very energetic midfield, have threats and attack who really did rinse United at the start of the season. They've got a goalkeeper who, um, you know, his his use of the ball is is so renowned that I think was it Klopp or or Guardiola said early in the season he could be a playmaker. So uh, I mean, Ben, ben Mee's gone just slotted straight into that Brentford side and and been a really good shrewd signing for them as well. Uh, he's he had a few good days with Burnley at Old Trafford. So I, I'm certainly not expecting United to to win this game comfortably it's it might be an ordeal but maybe that is the kind of game and the kind of test they need ahead of you know the the running coming up and I think it also it's it's also another fascinating test of United's resolve because there is going to be some pressure on them there is a chance they could be coming into this game uh, outside the Champions League places and, and fifth below Tottenham below Newcastle so they've they've got a challenge there but it does help them that the Saturday game they're they're the early kickoff at twelve thirty, so they've they've got two very swift opportunities to try and banish that that Newcastle result and just consign it very much to the past and not allow it to linger. 
Yeah, definitely. I'm just actually looking at some stats ahead of this game on Wednesday night. And Brentford are actually the first London club since Arsenal in 1991 looking to win away of both City and United in the same season. So they've got a little record there to try and break. Rich, just to just to wrap this up, really, you have to go back to the 19th of February for the last time United scored a league goal. Sounds a while, but in fairness, they have only played three league games in that time. There's going to be a little bit of pressure on them from the fans, you would have thought, Wednesday night to get an early goal and set a tempo from this game, in this game from the very beginning, isn't there? I think as well, just for them to play the polar opposite of how they did at St. Joseph's Park. They need to dictate, they need to dominate. Again, it's easier said than done when you haven't got Ericsson and Casemiro there to, to give you that foothold in midfield. But yeah, I think United just need to go at it from, from the off, really. You can usually tell in the first opening minutes how United are going to play in the whole match. And it's funny that even when you look back at some United's recent wins, you think of that, that Leicester game. Leicester were all over them in the first half. United were there for the taking. De Gea made yeah. some good saves. And by full time, it looked like a comfortable day at the office for United. But it was far from that. And I think it is all going to be about how United start, really. It's just about showing that they are capable of of winning and by blitzing a team and just by looking comfortable again. Because... So many of their wins this season have just been down to moments, spells in the game where chaotic moments have happened. You look at the Fulham game before the international break, United were dreadful for 70 minutes and then 40 seconds it all changed and by the end it looks like they, they were quite comfortable. It was the same against West Ham. Southampton, the nil-nil. I know Casemiro's red card changed the way the game was played, but before the red card, United were poor. I you think say the, the same the big... for Leeds away as well. That was, yeah, that was a late rally. Yeah, They just need to... They just need to to have a game. I'm not saying a complete performance because they are easier said than done, but United just need to come out of the blocks on Wednesday night for me and just give the fans reason to believe they are they have changed and they aren't still capable of the old bad habits. So, yeah, I think from United's point of view, just go out there and, as cliche it is, just get the fans behind you and, and just go for it. Yeah, definitely. I think you'd actually probably have to go back to maybe as far as the Bournemouth game, perhaps at the start of January, to say the last time they put a complete ninety-minute performance together, and that was obviously against one of the you know the weaker teams in the league. So certainly something for Ten Hag to look at, and hopefully they can improve between now and the end of the season. But we are going to call time on today's episode of the Manchester Red Podcast. Uh, a big thank you as ever to Samuel and Rich for joining me this afternoon. Thank you, George. Yeah, You're thank welcome. you very much. No problem at all. Thanks for thanks for joining me, chaps. And if you enjoyed this podcast, we and you would prefer to watch us, um, you can now find us on YouTube as well. Just search Manchester Red, and you can subscribe to the channel on there. We'll be back later in the week to reflect on the game with Brentford on Wednesday night and look ahead to Saturday's clash with Everton. So join us then and take care. And of course, keep tabs on the MEM website for all the latest United news and views. And we'll catch you again very soon.